Welcome to Buzz British Book Club. I'm Kit. I'm Bridge. Today we're going to get Buzz and talk about books. Last week we released Kindred Part 1 briefly before realising there were some glitches with the content. So this week we are re-releasing Kindred Part 1 alongside Kindred Part 2. Uh, so we thank you for your patience, we thank you for hanging in there with us, and we hope you enjoy our discussion of Octavia Butler's Kindred Part 1 and Part 2 this week. Let's jump into it. Today's Buzz Juice is Nighthawk Black, and it's a rich red wine blend. Allegedly, it's bold, dark, and jammy. Mm. And <laughs> we got a box of it which apparently has the equivalent of four bottles in this box. <laughs> I don't remember how much I paid for it. I was just like, I'm intrigued by boxed wine. And I wanted to try it. And it also say, it says on the box, it stays fresh for up to 30 days. And I was very pleased to hear that because I didn't want Kit and I to have to drink the entirety of the box <laughs> in one sitting. Oh my God, <laughs> I would be peeing with trash cans. <laughs> <laughs> we might need a catheter. Um, but so yeah, so we were a little bit uh, concerned about how to drink it though, because uh, it is a big box and it's deceptively small. Yeah, like, it looks like it doesn't hold that much. It looks like maybe you could fit two bottles of wine. Yeah, it's there. not like those not boxes of what four. Franzia or whatever that are quite large. You know, what those are the kind of the most stereotypical yeah, boxes yeah, yeah. of wine. And I've never really looked at those to learn like what the milliliters were. Me in that. and neither. Honestly, though, the box size is is about the size you'd expect. A bottle of wine to be packaged in yeah just a single bottle of wine so that's why it's so deceptively it's weird small yeah so anyway so we ended up just pouring a lot into these massive we did some glasses research. we did some research we found out that the average serving of a glass of wine is five ounces and typically when we're doing these sessions for novels where we're talking for like two hours Kit and I typically consume about three glasses. Right, yeah. So we busted out Kit's measuring cup. <laughs> it had ounces on it, so that made it very easy. And incidentally, we aerated the wine as yeah. we were doing our measuring. So I think it worked out. So now uh, we've got these giant glasses with 15 ounces of <laughs> wine in them. <laughs> yeah it's gonna be a great time and actually you know I'm, I'm, uh it didn't make me grimace but it, i i don't know how much of that means anything anymore because my taste buds have changed so yeah. dramatically from when we started what now when you drink sweet ago, wine you grimace i know oh <laughs> <laughs> i can't i can't even think about drinking sweet wine anymore it's like ugh. Yeah, I told you Welch's grape juice. I'm enjoying it so far. Honestly, I already feel slightly buzzed. Really? Because I haven't eaten much today and oh, it's going to go it's going to go straight, <laughs> straight to your heads. Yeah. And, you know, I'm supposed to go cycling later on today. Oh, so that'll be fun. <laughs> that will be interesting. 
Maybe, I'll be pulled over. Maybe we should take all that idea yeah, for a couple maybe. hours. So let's just jump into the story. Yeah, so uh, continuing our admiration of Octavia Butler mm-hmm. with Kindred, which is a novel she published in 1979. And um, it's not like her most f- um, famous work because she won hugo and nebula awards for other works of hers which i did some research because i didn't really know what those meant like i've heard the uh-huh. terms but i didn't know what the difference between those two were so they're both annual awards for best sci-fi or fantasy but the difference is the nebula one is in the u.s or strictly american oh. and the hugo one is world interesting i did not know that either and she was the first black woman to win either of those um which was pretty cool um and just for some context which i love context um some other winners of those awards for those people that maybe aren't super familiar with the writing history and you know all that stuff that maybe kit and i are a little more familiar because of it's what we would like to do right yeah um, <clears throat> Ursula K. Le Guin, one of my all-time favorites. She's won several times. Isaac Asimov, Orson Scott Card, Neil Gaiman, Connie Willis, N.K. Jemison, who incidentally was heavily inspired by Octavia Butler. Oh, neat! And won the Hugo Award three years in a row. Jeez, freaking amazing! I want to talk more more about her a little bit later, but. Interesting. Yeah. So she's in great company. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just was like looking up her list of accolades and awards and influence and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, she's won the Nebula for, for Parable of Talents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she won Hugo and Nebula for a novelette she wrote called Blood Child. Um, and one sort of random uh, indication of her impact on the world was in 2021, NASA named the landing site of the Perseverance rover on Mars, Octavia E. Butler Landing. Oh, that's legit. Which seems perfect because, you know, she's a, she was a sci-fi writer. Yeah. So I kind of think she would love that. I hope she would like it. Yeah. Because as we mentioned on our Child Finder episode, she died rather suddenly in 20, or 2006. So unfortunately, she's no longer with us. So it's interesting about the rover because my husband was telling him about this book. And my husband pulled up some sort of little YouTube video about her. And it mentioned something in her early life where she'd seen some video about a woman that goes to Mars or something. And that kind of sort of inspired her to, like, write something better. So it's funny. (laughs) If that story is true and, and that was the spark or whatever, she watched this crappy sci-fi film about this woman martian or whatever and then like they they name the landing spot on mars after her after her that's it's funny. kind of it's like a kind of beautiful yeah way. coming full circle yeah. um so just more about her um she wrote um 
especially like in the Afro Afrofuturism sort of it's not a genre but it's mm -hmm. a theme throughout it should definitely be a genre though um which i guess the term was coined in 1994 but she was you know obviously writing well before that she's one of the first examples of it um so in the course of my research she's inspired jordan peele's films she's inspired nk jemison's writing which i mentioned her before um, and something that she said, N.K. Jemison said about Octavia Butler, really um, gave me a good perspective about what it would mean um, for a Black person to read uh, a sci-fi or fantasy novel that shows Black people in the future, what it would mean to see that. So she said, this is a quote, I remember just kind of being stunned that a black woman existed in the future because science fiction had not done that before. There was just this conspicuous absence where it seemed we all just vanished after a while. Wow. So I, I just thought that gave me a great perspective on how it could feel um, and how amazing Octavia Butler is yeah. in, in light of that because she was one of the first to do it in the you know, 60s and 70s and beyond when it was or, you know, such a terrible time. She envisioned this future um, where Black people would exist and thrive yeah. and, and be heroes and heroines in these stories. So I thought that was amazing. Yeah, that's really awesome. And I, I kind of think like... As I was reading about her more, it seems like lately her work is seeing more of a renaissance because there's a TV show on FX. Hulu, I thought. Well, you can watch it on Hulu. It's the channel oh, is oh. FX. Um, and for all you cable people out I there, guess, like, <laughs> gotten with the times, do people just still do that? Stream. <laughs> uh, so anyway, they they made that and. After having read this book, I really want to watch it. Although I do think it will be something I can only consume in small chunks, segments. Yeah, because it is quite quite heavy. Yeah, that's putting it lightly. Yeah, <laughs> no fun intended. Yeah. So before we get into the actual story itself, I love context. Um, so I just wanted to sort of give you some points in history relevant to this story and sort of the surrounding landscape of civil rights, what's legal, what's not, and how Octavia Butler was amazing for writing the story in that world. So 1963, I think most people know, that was the year um, Martin Luther King Jr. gave the I Have a Dream speech. Right. Um, 1964. Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which makes it illegal to discriminate um, in employment. Um, 1968, Shirley Chisholm was the first black congresswoman ever elected. And 1960 or 1975, Arthur Ashe, famous tennis player, wins Wimbledon. Um, and then 1977, <laughs> Roots airs for the first time um and to bring it full circle of course that stars 
Mr. Lavar Burton. And um, I'm sure that had a profound impact on Octavia Butler, the book, and and probably the TV show. It was one of the most watched TV broadcasts of all time. It still is. And I looked at the list. It was behind, like, Richard Nixon's um, resignation speech, the (laughs) Apollo 11 landing, and then you know an odd number of super bowls which is depressing but uh i i think it's amazing i mean it's nearly what um 50 years on yeah well 45 years on that it's still one of the most watched tv shows or tv broadcasts um so all that context and then one last thing i want to mention it was 1967 that loving versus virginia the Supreme Court case made interracial marriages legal. Um, and the reason why I wanted to mention that was because in this story, an interracial marriage features heavily. And given she wrote it and had it published 12 years later, I thought that was pretty amazing. So that's my context for the story. Um, you ready to dive in? Yeah. We've got a summary if we want to start there. Yeah, let's start there. Dana, a black woman living in California with her white husband, Kevin, in the 1970s, gets transported back to Maryland in the 1800s. Through a series of time-traveling episodes, she meets a young white boy named Rufus, who she determines is her ancestor. Dana is forced to protect Rufus in order to ensure her family's existence, but with each return to the past, the price for doing so is higher and higher. I like that summary. That's a good summary. Thank you. I wrote it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> You're so good at that. It's almost like you do that for a living. Oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great summary. I, I, You mentioned she's living with her white husband and I really love the way Octavia Butler foreshadows things and like info drops things. Because you know you read some books where you're just like, you know, a character walks in and then they just describe that character immediately. Mm -hmm. She doesn't do that at all, really. It's much more organic. Very organic. And and we lightly done. Yes, and we don't know that Kevin is white until he comes back with her. And they, um, I think it's her second time back to the past. And Kevin is like holding her. So he gets transported back with her too. And through a series of dialogue, I think she says something like, um, well, like you won't have any problems here. And, you know, like, you know, you should just say that you own me or whatever, because that's how we're going to survive this, basically. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what a way to just drop that in. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like probably at this point, I listened to the audio book, so I'm not sure what page it was, yeah. but it was at least 50, 60 pages into it, probably more than that. And we learned this critical piece about her and her husband and their dynamic. And it was just brilliantly done. But she does it not only with that, but just like, with a lot of things, like her foreshadowing. God, her first line. Is her first point. line. Now you're, you know, you turn the page to the prologue and you read the first line, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. I'm, I'm here, I'm hooked, I'm reading. So the first line is, I lost an arm on my last trip home, period. 
my left arm, period. And you're like, okay, there's no way I'm not going to read Right? Arms. There's exactly. no way. What a freaking hook. Yeah, so she she goes back to kind of retell the of the story of these different episodes and she's just figuring out why this is happening how it works like what are the dynamics of this time travel pattern and the first one she's like moved into a new i thought it was a house it's a house or an apartment that she just moved into i don't remember i think i thought it was a house i don't remember anyway it doesn't matter it's a bigger space for them both yeah and they're both writers which of course we love yeah that that was awesome sort of bonded over being writers um and i think there's a lot of dana's character that is directly pulled from octavia butler's own experience definitely so her first like time travel episode she's like unpacking in a house or apartment whatever her home and feels dizzy like Mm -hmm. all of a sudden and she's like i need to sit down there's something wrong with me and then suddenly she sort of fades out of her living room into this riverbank she doesn't know where and she obviously doesn't know what's happening and then she sees a child drowning in the river yeah and immediately goes in and saves his life and that's essentially your introduction to the whole tension and crux of this story which was so exciting and engaging and and so much tension and so well done yeah that's what you know her she's a master of her craft definitely yeah so the little boy she saves is rufus um it's this little red-haired white boy and um she he's not breathing when she brings him onto the bank so she has to give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and there's this woman that's so annoying oh i hate her she's screaming the mother of this boy's margaret yeah she's like my baby you hurt my oh that's baby. that's the other thing with the the <laughs> audiobook because i listen to it as well and there's one narrator but she does the southern accent oh she does it so good and she somehow tweaks it between different characters mm-hmm. which is masterful and margaret is so annoying oh my god i hate her and then and then she doesn't so of course they don't know it in the moment like dana doesn't know the time the year but it's 1815 i believe something like that something yeah. like that and um so they don't know what cpr is right. at that time so margaret starts bashing um dana over the head when she's trying to save yeah, her yeah she's like attacking her yeah because she one thinks she's a man because of how she's dressed she's wearing pants she's wearing pants um which you know how dare she um and then her hair is short as well right um and so she's beating her and trying to like you know get her off her son and dana's like i'm trying to save his life like, right and she does yeah obviously right um fortunately then, or unfortunately yeah i mean i guess that's the paradox is like over time she as i alluded to in the summary she figures out that Rufus is her like great 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 whatever grandfather. Yeah, so she remembers so so the second time she gets pulled back. So 
We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I think. Per usual, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so she saves the boy and then this man rushes up with this gun and points it in her face. And she's so terrified that he's going to shoot her in the face that she just finds herself back in her living room. And that's where it's kind of established that this child's endangerment, at least for me as a reader, it calls doesn't, it, her. Right. Mm. Like the child's endangerment is what takes her to this world and then her fear of death it brings her back. her back, which is really so interesting. terrible. Uh, uh, yeah, how she uses that later on is oh terrible. But yes. anyway, you were saying. Um, so the second time that she gets pulled back, um, the boy's a little older, and mm-hmm. he's literally just set fire to the drapes. <laughs> which this is how you identify sociopathic behavior. Yes, that and like if he's killing little animals or something, you which know. he didn't do, which was surprising. Yeah, well, maybe he did. Maybe he did. We just, it wasn't in the book, but yeah. So he just set fire to the drapes, and because so... he was mad that his dad sold a horse he wanted. Yes, which he's like already showing these terrible personality traits. Oh my God, he's like eight. He's eight in the set, or is he twelve? I forget. He's eight because he's twelve when he falls out of the tree. Right. Okay. Yeah, that was the third time. So yeah, so she kind of like bonds with this little boy a little bit. It's kind of in her head that like, oh well, maybe I can help this child mature into somebody decent. Yeah, in spite of his environment, psychopathic, sociopathic weirdo. And to be fair, there are moments where he shows glimpses of hope when he's when he's young, when he's a child. Because at that point, Dana can still talk to him in a way where he'll listen and to, sort some, deg- to, to some, some degree, degree respect what she says. Yeah, at least he's afraid of her because he, he doesn't know what she is because she just appears and then disappears mm. and then pops up years later in his timeline. It's only minutes for her. Right. But it's like years later for him. But it's on the second visit that she learns that his last name is Waylon. And then she remembers that one of her ancestors was a Waylon. Which I think she had from an old Bible. Right? Yes, that's right. An old Bible. When people used to write their whole family trees in the Bible. Yeah. And um, so she remembers that her ancestor was Alice Waylon mm-hmm. and Rufus Waylon. And she gets this idea in her head that he married her. Right. And that it was a love thing and so consensual yeah yeah. and so this idea kind of takes root in her that oh Rufus grows up to be a good person you know he grows up and and, to protect him right and so um he tells her because she's black and this is a plantation and he's they're both afraid of what might happen if her his father comes in and finds her there the stranger um he tells her how to get to his friend's house uh, Alice she's a free black little girl and her mother um, they're, f- they're free blacks and he tells her how to get to their house and she can hide out there and so that's when she kind of like makes the thing in her mind he says oh that's my friend and so she kind of has this idea in her head that like it's going to be this like romantic yeah, thing like in her mind he like maybe returns a plantation and sets all the slaves free and... right maybe they fall in yeah. love like how did they get married and like all these kinds of things are like going in in her head which makes more sense when you find out that kevin is white right why she would kind of like think those things or at least hope for those things but i thought it was an interesting 
and and this is kind of like a theme that I found throughout the book, how people like to romanticize the antebellum era and how, at, at least, so coming from a white perspective, I am white. I was raised in the South. I have a lot of cringy history surrounding this era. Um, but a lot of people that I know um, like to romanticize this era. Oh, you like, like Gone with the Wind. You know? Yeah, Gone with the Wind, which is interesting. She actually she mentions, mentions that book. Because she here. couldn't stomach it because it's the... I, I forget it's, what the quote is, but basically alluding to the slaves being happy because they were treated relatively well. Right, yeah. And in Mammy, the Mammy character, yeah. which was, you know, anyway, I don't want really to go down the rabbit hole of Gone with the Wind, but, but yeah, <laughs> basically the romanticism, romanticism, right. that word. But it's interesting how Octavia kind of like weaves that into her character, into Dana's character at the beginning. Um, well, maybe throughout. But she kind of romanticizes this idea. She kind of like goes into it with that lens. Like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Like maybe nice things happen to slaves. And like maybe my ancestors did this and that. Da, 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 da. Obviously, as the book goes on, her opinions change because she comes, you know, face to face with reality. But I really confronted with the brutality of the day-to-day life that was yes. being a black person in those yeah. days. But I just thought it was a really awesome arc that Octavia wove into it. It's almost like she was taking that lens of just probably America at the time in the 70s, I would imagine, since it's still rampant in the 21st century too, that people like to romanticize that era. And she kind of like starts with that. Like, let me lead you Mm -hmm. into this with what you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then let me just smash that to pieces <laughs> and tell you well. like it is yeah and it was really well done it was really well done through the two uh white male characters as well which i want to get into later but kind of they're foils of each other almost but they have similarities in their privilege and what that privilege does to their mindset in terms of understanding what the reality is for Dana and for other enslaved peoples at that time. Yeah. It seems like each time she goes, she's there longer. Yeah. She's scary. And she has she hadn't really figured out what would prompt her to go. So as as time goes by, the story is structured around these episodes of time travel. It gets longer and longer. She doesn't know how this works. So she's really scared to leave leave their house, understandably, because she's afraid maybe she'd be driving down the road and suddenly get transported and then the car would right. murder someone or whatever. Um, so she comes back and she's beaten all up. And um, Yeah, because when she went to Alice's, there were some white patrollers that... Caught her outside... And thought she was a runaway. She right. didn't have any papers. They didn't know who she was. Um, and they mistook her, I think, for Alice's mum. Her sister. Alice was the oh, no, 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 girl. No. Alice's um, mum. Her aunt. They oh. mistook her for Alice's oh. mum's sister. Because they looked so much alike. And he tried to rape her. And she basically bashed him over the head with a branch. And then yeah. escaped back to 90, the 1970s. Right. Yeah, she got dizzy and teleport to back 
So then Kevin, as we've said, the time that passes in the present, in this case, is much shorter than the time that passes when she goes back to the 1800s. So when she comes back, it's a matter of minutes, sometimes hours uh, of time difference in the 70s. So she comes back and Kevin's like, you know, what happened? You got all beat up. So he he cleans her up a bit, wants to take her to the hospital. She says no, because he's afraid she'll get transported from the hospital. And um, so she just wants to sleep. And then Kevin cleans her up and basically gives her a bag of like supplies and ties it to her waist to prepare her just in case she gets transported suddenly. Right. And then she comes around the next morning to find herself that way. And then I think it was relatively quickly after that, she's transported. She starts to feel it coming on. Yeah. And so she tells Kevin and Kevin grabs her and she tries to push him off, but he is insistent. Yeah. And so they both end up getting transported back. Yeah. And I think this is when Rufus is 12 and he had just fallen out of a tree and broke his leg. Yep. Yeah. And isn't he with Nigel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, his they're friend. friends. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is an, another enslaved boy. Wow, I just realised that was Nigel. Mm-hmm. And they were friends. They were playing together. Um, and climbing he were, trees. And he climbed a tree and fell and broke his leg. And his... So Rufus's dad, Tom, right? Oh is yeah. the worst he's even worse than rufus if you can imagine as rufus gets older tom was the worst um just brutal uncaring cruel intentionally cruel and even to his son he yes very cruel to his son which was part of the reason why rufus turned out the way he did tom doesn't want to pay for a doctor for his son he's very focused on money so, you know, the slave trade is how he makes a lot of his money and he doesn't want to spend it on a doctor to come tend to his son's leg. Yeah. And at that time, you know, he would have been in an immense amount of pain. There was no... Um, later on, she sort of brings, what, Excedrin back? Yeah, she brings Aspirin. Aspirin, aspirin and, and, and Excedrin, excedrin. back. Because she learns, as this happens, like, I need to bring some of those things. Yeah. But at this time, she didn't have any because Kevin had backed her bag and it just had a switchblade blade in it and some clothes. Right. Um, and so um, he was in incredible pain and there was no pain relief except for maybe giving him whiskey or something like right. back in the days or opium or something like that. But um, So basically he's fully conscious when his dad does decide to get the doctor and the doctor resets his leg so Mm. she can hear him from outside i think she's in the cookhouse yeah and she can hear him screaming while they reset his leg yeah there wasn't a lot of um spatial awareness i guess in the book um because there's a lot of talk about because some of the slaves have their own cabins uh, especially later on um alice gets her own cabin and um, right yeah, Nigel has his own cabin. And there's not a lot of, uh, I guess, spatial awareness no, in the book. It's like, I went to the cookhouse or I went to Alice's cabin or whatever. And it's not like... I never really got a sense of the layout of the I didn't, I, Yeah, I couldn't really figure out how big it was. But I think that's part of her style is very lightly done. Like, not a 
ton of exposition. Yeah. Description. That's really bravo for anybody writing a book in the 70s. I feel like every time I go back and I read an older book, there's tons and tons and tons of exposition. God, if you think of like Lord of the Rings, even Lord of the Rings or the one that you like, Clan of the Cave Bear. Yeah. Tons and tons of Because Jean did all the research to find out about <laughs> all those bloody plants. And God bless her little heart, she was going to put all that information in that book because <laughs> she researched it. But yeah, it was a bit of a slog to get through all that <laughs> to the sexy part. But Octavia Butler just cuts all that oh, out. God, she what amazing. a trailblazer for her time. You know, like we talk about now, like show, don't tell or whatever. And, and there was a lot of tell in this story as far as like her emotions and things were but as far as like descriptions and like the action and things going on in a story she just cut right to it and it was really brilliant god i'd love to see what the first draft of this looked like oh yeah wouldn't you be curious like how much work did it take her to go from her first draft to this what we're reading you know now. it's interesting that you say that because i feel like a lot of people don't even do drafts they just they just it's just one thing and then that, that's it sort of revise it's, as they go well revise as they go but maybe they just don't need to revise like charles dickens for example <laughs> like i i kind of sort of feel like none of them revised anything i mean like they just wrote it and it was how it was and that's partially why it's such a slog to get through. and pieces that way, jeez. <laughs> that's partially why it's such a slog Nobody to get was editing their shit. And can you imagine all the paper and all the ink they would have had to waste if they revised and things? I can only imagine the barriers for Octavia Butler in the 70s to get anything published. She oh, was yeah. She was pretty successful for a black woman of that time, I mean, incredibly successful because I, one thing I also read about her was um, she was the only science fiction writer of any race or gender to, to win a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, Ooh. which I, I mean, it sounds like they're hard to come by. So the fact that she got one of those and kind of put her in a position where she could afford to spend her time writing. That's really awesome. Just really really kind of grateful that they recognized her talent at that time yeah. so that we could get all of the amazing works that she created from there but i would imagine like she had to do extra work to get anything published regardless as a black regardless, woman as a woman and as a black woman especially in this genre yes uh, so dominated by white males yeah so i got i think kindred she must have had to you know make sure it was perfection from the start you know not like yeah. some people who are just like my editor fix it you know not, right. i guess more established people might be like that but anyway um so yeah she's amazing i love her style but it is more sparse yeah on some just details in general yeah but her dialogue, maybe it's because especially, uh, you know, through the audiobook, I really liked the dialogue. Like, it felt grounded and natural and drove the story. Yeah. And it really, like, brought these characters to life for me. So, yeah, I love that. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about when Kevin comes back with her? Some of the some of the things that you maybe didn't like or liked about Kevin and, and his. <coughs> <laughs> the wine went down the wrong pipe. Um, yeah, at first I was like, Kevin's all right, and then there were some moments where I was like, Kevin is not all right. Yeah. Um, but I do think he was depicted in a very realistic and insightful way because at first as a husband he behaves in the way you expect him to he's like i'm gonna protect you right this scenario is wild and surreal but i believe you and i'm not gonna throw you into a loony bin because you know you're saying you travel back in time you know what though i kind of wonder if maybe he would have thought twice about that if she hadn't literally been covered in mud sure. and bruises when she came back. And witnessed times. her disappear and, and reappear. reappear. Yeah. Right. No, I think so. And then even like now, <clears throat> in the third time Dana's drawn back and they find Rufus falling from the tree and Kevin has come with her, he says, like, it's real. This really happened. Like, right. Which I, I feel like is a human reaction. It's understandable. Like, sure, yeah. If you told me, you know, Bridge... I've been transported through 200 years, you know, whatever, 100 years, whatever, of time. And this happened. I'd be like, okay. Right. Um, so how can I help? Right. <laughs> and, you Who know. Who can I contact <laughs> for you? What do you need from me? And I would be the one that would get you your bug out bag and make sure you had what you needed. Um, and go with you if I could. But, but, <laughs> but you know, I think it's it's realistic for him to be like he he wasn't really gonna believe it until he experienced yeah. it too yeah which you know he does and then dana's thinking how can i use this like dynamics in this scenario to keep us both safe right because in her mind she knows that she's connected to rufus and Kevin's only there because he was holding on to her. Mm-hmm. So she's like, I we need to make sure we're together mm-hmm. all the time so that when I start to fade back or whatever. You come with you me. You come with me. Which was excellent foreshadowing because, of course, when it happened, You knew it had to happen. You knew it. Yeah. And, and it builds that tension where you're it like, does. it's a matter of time and how is she going to handle it? What's going to happen? Yeah. So Tom, Rufus's father, catches her. So so they're there for a number of months and um, Rufus, no, Kevin is teaching Rufus how to read and write. And the whole time they're the white people or even the black people of that time are reacting to dana like one she wears pants she's weird she right. she looks like a man two she talks quote unquote funny or like white people or whatever so she's speaking in a way that's normal for the 1970s but, well, she, right she doesn't have an accent but is um, highly irregular for the 18 you know 20s or whatever it is that and she speaks more forcefully i suppose then um she speaks with confidence she's not differential to people she's not servile which is how you know black people enslaved people were forced to behave right in those cases and so she's kind of brazen from their reaction and interpretation because she meets their eyes she says what she thinks right she gives her opinion and they're like several times they're like i didn't ask what you thought 
Right. And like, not your place to tell me what I think. Yeah, blah, like, blah, 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 I literally blah. don't care. And then they're all, like, Tom especially is extra creepy because oh, I hate him. he's like, like, amazed that she can read and write. And. But it's more because she can do it better than him. And there's this huge inferiority complex with him and, and Margaret. And Rufus. All of the whole lot. Yeah, because they, you know, aren't very well educated and clearly... It's like imposter syndrome to the max. Mm -hmm. And so then Tom is, like, trying to get Dana to teach Rufus how to read and write. Well, it's a little sneakier than that because he's trying to allude to her that if she decides that she's going to teach Rufus, then somehow... He's going to buy her from Kevin or something like that. There's and then he's going to manipulation. It is so cringy and just so psychological. And I mean, obviously, Dana knows Kevin's not going to do that because, like, that's her husband. But Kevin does have to behave in a way that he's trying to test Tom's, like, uh, human humanity, humanity yeah. and also to try to gain his trust and respect. So he's got to be a little bit cringy. He's got yeah. to fit in. They've got to act. And that was one thing that she mentioned. She's like, we're actors right, right now. We're just acting in a world that's not ours. We're just pretending and like all these sort of things. And it's interesting how time goes on when she keeps coming back. It's less and less that she's acting and it's more and more that she's just mm-hmm. sort of assimilating which is the scary. Very scary. Um, because But she... also main theme that I want to touch on a little bit later too. Abusive relationships. Yes. Yeah. There's a several, several examples of that and the dynamics of the whole structure of this novel is created in abuse. She has to go back and save an ancestor who's systematically going to torture and treat her like shit. Right. And the only way she can escape it is to be afraid for her life. Yeah. And there's this uncertainty the whole time because she's scared. Yeah. She doesn't know when something is going to happen to rip her from her life. Yeah. And put her back in danger again. Right. So there's no, (laughs) there's literally no joy or safety. There's no safety, there's no confidence, there's no happiness, there's no joy. It's like walking on eggshells constantly. And for her character, in the face of that, to still be brave, and we're kind of getting to the point where, so she's teaching Rufus, she's reading to Rufus, yeah, and then she meets Nigel, and starts to teach him how to read. Right. And she's... So remember, Nigel is a boy of similar age of Rufus, but he's an enslaved boy. And so she's teaching them both. And she even comments on this, like, the difference between the two. Nigel is, like, incredibly more... Like, progressing incredibly... Yeah. At a faster rate. It's clear that he's a lot smarter than Rufus. Way more intelligent, way more driven, way more focused yeah on achieving things she even mentions like she gave him a spelling test and he got everything right Right. whereas you know rufus is like doesn't care is not applying himself just wants her to read to him right so um but then tom discovers so rufus's dad discovers that 
she's in the cookhouse. She has a book. She wasn't supposed to have a book outside of the house. And um, I think he he figures out she was teaching Nigel, I think, in that moment. Well, he told her to stay away from books. Yeah. He told her not to look at his books anymore. So when he sees her with one of his books, he immediately assumes that she stole it, which she did. So but maybe he didn't realise she was teaching Nigel. No, that was a big thing. She was kind of like motioning to Nigel to put like to put the, the pencil, pencil away, away, to like, you know, hide she this or whatever. The spelling test in she, the fire. Yeah, she did that. So I don't think he knew that she was teaching Cause Nigel. Because Nigel would have gotten in trouble yeah, too. He yeah, he sold Nigel or something. Something horrible like that, yeah. definitely. So it was just her. And so he... he throws her out of the cookhouse and he starts whipping her. So he takes drags her to this tree, right? Where he's gonna like tree? tie her to the tree or something and beat her. And so she's being whipped and screaming. I thought he just threw her on the ground and he just cracked the whip over her. For some reason, maybe I'm wrong. I, I think that's the next time. Is it? She okay. tries yeah, that's the next one. Anyway, she's she's getting beaten by right. a whip because Tom is essentially the devil. And Kevin's in the house. He's in the freaking house. And I was like, why are you in the house? And and so, like, she's feared for her life, as anybody would in that moment. Kevin's running to come right. save her, but does not get there soon enough. And she's transported back to the 1970s. Yep. So her, and Kevin is left behind. Her worst fear, that foreshadowing. <laughs> her worst fear comes true. Kevin is left behind. And she doesn't know when she's going to go back again. So she's just kind of in this in this house that she's been living with Kevin in for like two days. Yeah, from her birthday. This all started on her birthday. Right, that's her 26th right. 26th birthday. And I'm yeah. like, what a shit way to celebrate your birthday. I know. And, and so this place that she comes back to is not really home. Not yet. Because they haven't lived there but two days. They haven't even unpacked the house. Yeah. You know? So she's there by herself. Kevin is stuck in the past. She can't leave the house, as we've already right. said. Right. Yeah. So she can't go to the hospital, even though she's got these ghastly scars and, yeah. and wounds on her back. So she just has to kind of, like, medicate herself. I think and... she calls her cousin, doesn't she? And she says, can you go get some groceries for me? And then her cousin sort of judges her for yeah. what she imagines is she thinks Kevin's beating her. Yeah. And she can't tell her cousin that that's not true. So it's this weird sort of judgment from her cousin of staying with her. Like, she says something like, I never thought you'd be the type to let a man beat you. Okay. Right. Thank you for getting the groceries, but leave your judgment outside. We don't right. need that. Yeah. And also, you don't but know she, what this woman is going through. But she can't deny she, it she either. She can't tell her the truth. Right. So She'd she just send it to the loony it. bin. Yeah. Which they sort of allude later on to the asylum, and I can only think, like, what that would look like in the 70s for a black woman. Ooh. I yeah, I was yeah. just thinking in general, but yeah, that might put it in new context. Mm. It would be horrible. Yeah. So then doesn't she have, like, quite a long time by herself? Eight days. She has eight days by herself. Well, she's just, like, at the house. She sets up her office. And she's... Um, she tries to write. She can't get anything out. Yeah. She's like, she's Which is, is another layer of, like, total shit. Because I know, like, this scenario is nightmarish, right? Any way you slice it, it's, yeah. it's a nightmare. 
and beyond that i can't think of a word strong enough but at least she could write something down and use it for her own personal gain but then she can't even do that no the muse is just completely gone and i mean it makes sense in a way i think you know if you ask a poet most poets maybe some of their best work is done in their lowest times oh sure um and i feel like writers maybe some of them are similar i mean if you think about eric i can't even say his name remark remark i mean turning his drama of being a soldier in world war one into that novel right yeah i mean it probably took some time and space yeah like he needed the process yeah so it's probably slightly yeah yeah and you know kevin her husband has disappeared doesn't know when she's going to see him again if he's okay if yeah yeah like he could die you know right there's no telling what would happen so no wonder she can't write anything right and like the only way she gets transported back is if rufus is in danger which may or may not ever happen again right she makes a comment later in the book that rufus goes through has gone through so many near-death experiences that most people never have a single one in their entire life or something mm-hmm. like that that's not exactly the right phrase but it that's the gist but it's it's his own behavior that puts him in those situations right yeah but anyway so eight days later she gets called back she did prepare another bag she did and this is the one where she put aspirin in yes. right so she was thinking like what if i got my house that i can take back that's going to help me out a little bit more well she was thinking about if she got beat again Mm -hmm. she would need those painkillers she'd need that and she would um i think she took another knife yeah with her well she had a little knife around her ankle Mm -hmm. so kevin so she gets pulled back and it's like five years later and kevin has left the wayland plantation yeah so he's gone up north. This is what she learns from Rufus, um, who was like drunk in in the front yard and throwing up. Or no, was this, the this, this was no. This is the time when he raped Alice oh. and Isaac was beating the shit out of him. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mixed up the the two segments. So um, so she comes. So let's talk about that. So okay. she she comes back and she sees rufus getting the shit beat out of him um by, by this other, man by a grown man who's black and she sees a black girl with her dress torn and immediately she just immediately knows exactly what happened like rufus deserves this i know exactly what happened mm-hmm. which is interesting because her earlier hopes for rufus in that moment it's almost like there's just no question in her mind what's going on well, like you said it all comes crashing down it all comes crashing down it's like rufus did something horrible and he deserves this beating um but she interferes basically um, stops isaac isaac yes the the black boy's name is isaac which they're married right they are married isaac who is a free Man. no alice is free oh, isaac alice is... is not oh that's right yeah so alice has always been free but isaac the man she married is not and works on the wayland plantation yeah so he beats the shit out of rufus knocks him out 
And he's about to kill him. Yeah, and Dana's like, listen, if you kill him, you're going to be killed too. Right, you can't do this. And so she, he, Isaac and Alice run. Mm -hmm. And uh, she convinces Rufus. Who comes back around eventually. Right, and admits that he raped Alice. Yeah. And this is where I really kind of have a problem with some of the feminist ideas in the book, or maybe I should say anti-feminist ideas. I don't know. So Dana, quote unquote, recognizes that Rufus loves Alice. And that is very twisted way. <sighs> But I just had such a problem with the word I think love it's more there. obsession. It it was and like really power oh, and control. 100%. He loves himself. He doesn't love Alice at I all. I think maybe he can't love anyone. I mean, that's what a it's, psychopath is. Right. But it's just like he loves himself and he he wants to control things. And it, it said just... at some point like he was mad because Alice kept saying no. Like, yeah. it's like, she kept saying no. And it's like, okay, that's when right. we stop. Right. And, but he couldn't so process she's a, it. She's a free woman, and you, you were supposed to respect her wishes because she's a free woman. But the only outcome you can imagine is them getting together, whether it's consensual or not. Right, right. So he's like, well, I could have convinced her, whatever. Like, it didn't have to be that way. Like, you know, it was her fault this happened because she just didn't say yes. And all this cringy shit. And after all that, Dana still interprets that as he loves her and that's, like, the purpose of this. And, I mean, that's kind of brushing over a little bit. But I just really... Um, that bothered me a lot that it was portrayed that way. Well, I think... Because it's not... That's not love for Alice at all. It's love for himself and lust yeah. for Alice. And the distinction there was uh, not made. I th it's another example of these impossible scenarios that Dana's put in. Because she understands her mission to be to protect Rufus, to ensure that her family may live. Her focus is to ensure Alice has a daughter named Hagar. Hagar, which sounds like Icelandic or something. I don't know where that is. It's, it's Hebrew. Is it Biblic from the Bible? It's from the Bible, okay. yeah. That makes sense. Um, so shows that I'm a heathen. But anyway, <laughs> um, she, that's her mission is to ensure that happens. So she's put in this terrible position where she knows Alice is never going to say yes. Because who would in Alice's position? Well, until this, there was hope that maybe she would. But at this moment, it's when it's clear that um, this is never going to happen. She's never going to do, do this willingly. Consensually, yeah. yeah. So that is, she's basically put in this position to try to convince Alice to go to Rufus willingly so she has his children. So it's okay. So a lot happens before we get yeah, to that moment. Yeah, yeah. So Alice and Isaac run, and a few days later, Alice is brought back, and she's like almost beaten within an inch of her life. Dead. Yeah. Rufus has bought her, even though Alice is free. 
um, or was free running away with Isaac because she helped a slave mm -hmm. try to escape. Now she's no longer free. So Rufus had to buy her and she's half dead. She's been half chewed up by dogs. Yeah. And which is horrible. It's just so horrible. And uh, Dana has to kind of nurse her back mm -hmm. to health and take care of her and try to make sure there's no um, infection or anything like that. And when he, when, when, Alice is brought back and Rufus is fussing over her, which is so cringy. Mm. Um, he's like, oh, like, don't hurt her. Like, fix her. Like, I love her. And blah, blah, blah. And, blah. and then she's like, you need to go get me some brine. He's like, no, that's what father throws on the field, field slaves, yeah. you know, for their wounds. And it's painful. And she's she like, literally has no other... There's no antiseptic of, yeah, or making, anything like that. Making sure she doesn't get infected with all these like So the salt water bites. is the only thing that yeah. they really have. So she's like, you have to do this because you know this is the only way that she's gonna not get infected and mm -hmm. die. Um and so reluctantly he agrees to get the salt water. And so in this moment, like it was just the first I don't know even how to even explain it. Like, Rufus is just so... I don't know. Disgusting? Just disgusting. And, like, he just, like, he he acts like he cares, but he only cares to the point where if they're doing what he wants them to do... Oh, or he's he sweet until he's thinks, disagreed with. Right. And then it's just, like... The shit hits the fan from that point on, and it's so abusive and so horrible. Yeah, it's like the only option with him is to say yes, otherwise your life is in danger. Right, and if your life is in danger, it's not his fault. Um, it's your, your fault, fault for saying no. Because for saying no and for not doing what he wanted you to do, for making him do something horrible to you, um, it's all your fault that he did something to you. And it's so abusive and it's so horrible. I would imagine it's fairly realistic, though. It is extremely realistic. Like, representative of the behavior of, you know, slave owners in that time who thought they were, you know, somewhat fair. And they it's had a very that, like, distorted. very distorted, like, view of what was right and wrong. Right, like, oh, I'm going to treat you nicely if you just do what I want. As long as and I, if, you do what I say. And if you don't do what I want, well, then you brought it on yourself because then I'm going to treat you badly. Because you knew what the rules were. Right, and it's just so twisted and sick and disgusting. But, so he's he's treating Alice this way, and he eventually, you know, she recovers. Um, Isaac was sold south to Mississippi and the only thing that went through my mind as I was thinking that was to Django and Chains mm. where they're riding through the Mississippi that sloppy little mm -hmm. muddy town and you see all the slaves with those like spike collar yeah. things on mm -hmm. their heads um and so Isaac is sold south to Mississippi and then Sarah's husband Luke was it her husband I think it was her husband I think so um was also sold south and that that came to my my thoughts too um if you go south it's like the worst thing right that you can happen to a slave because it's so much worse like, further south like new orleans was the worst place you could end up 
Well, I don't know. Mississippi was pretty awful well, too. I, I just like the entire thing, and it, it's it's sad. And just thinking about Isaac, who was only protecting his wife from a rapist, um, it just it was so just sickened me just thinking about mm -hmm. it. But also, I feel like the rape of Alice was just brushed over. It was kind of. Because she wasn't there. Dana wasn't there to, like, She wasn't there to witness it. it. But even with the other slaves, like, when she finally... Probably because it was a relatively normal occurrence. Yeah. Well, we know I mean, how many times these white men took advantage. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it happened to Tess, too. But um, it's so terrible to imagine her family is the fruit of that. It's kind of like, not exactly, but kind of like in Nightingale where um, um, Vianne yeah. has Julian, right? Yeah. And that's the fruit of, of rape. And she has to decide right. to view him as joy versus something poisonous. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's this paradox that she's stuck in of needing to ensure that her family happens so she exists in the right. future but realizing the whole time it's a fruit of this rape and abuse and toxic 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 nightmarish world yeah that was you know slavery and for for enslaved peoples and especially for women so i thought Kevin was really well written because he seemed she again, did so little too. We don't see a lot of Kevin in this book. No, but she she's got there the lightest really, touch, but it's really effective. It's super effective. So Kevin, um, you kind of find out over time they met when they were working together at some automotive supply place yeah she works for like some kind of cleaning agency or she, something or some kind of like worked temp, for like temp a temp agency. agency and got farmed out and this is where i think she truly pulled from her real life experiences because it talked about how she wrote in in the middle of the night and then went to work to make money and had to take no dose to stay awake <laughs> and kevin's pickup line was basically like why do you look like a zombie all the time yeah because she never sleeps and then they have lunch together and they bond over being writers and then their relationship sort of starts from there um so kevin is like you see him in the beginning as i've mentioned of like being supportive and having moments that are annoying but realistic of like he unpacks his office and leaves her to unpack the rest of the house. Which he, I feel like that was like a, a female-male dynamic yeah. in the 70s. Yeah. Even now, probably. Probably. Uh, not my household. <laughs> <laughs> not in my house. <laughs> but then, you know, Kevin's trying to protect her and he equips her with the bag and, you know, like makes every effort to go back with her the third time she comes back. To protect her. Right. Because maybe to some extent he understands he has the power that she does not. Yeah. In that world. Yeah, because he's a white man. Yeah. 
Um, but at some point, and I can't remember exactly when he says this, it really stuck with me. It felt like such a true representation of privileged people's view of history. Because mm. at some point he says, this could be a great time to live in. I Ugh. keep thinking what an experience it would be to stay in it, go west and watch the building of the country, see how much of the old west mythology is true. And then this is a quote from the book. So this is Dana replying, west, I said bitterly. That's where they're doing it to the Indians instead of the blacks. Yeah. He looked at me strangely. He had been doing that a lot lately. Like, this is a sort of a metaphor for how allies can have a very narrow perspective, even if they have the best intention, yep. myself included. Yep. I'm no exception. Same. You know, we think we're doing great things, but a lot of times allies can be the worst because we maybe do the performative stuff that we think shows we're supporting or, you know, some sort of, um, you know, stent putting ourselves Bravado. up on a, a, on a pedestal because yeah. we think we, we say all and do all the right things. So Kevin thinks like, I married a black woman. I love a black woman. I still, I am supporting <laughs> my, my wife and protecting her. But then he still says stupid. <laughs> what the fuck was that? It was the watch. Oh my God. It's a, it's a, <laughs> I was like, it's a bird behind me. What the? My children's Paw Patrol watch. It's, 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 it's the Chicanetta alarm. <sighs> Anyway, <laughs> woof, that scared me. Anyway, Kevin is very much representative of the perils of allies and how we can say stupid things. I think that, especially white people can say stupid sure, things. Sure, as, as a reflection of our own privileged worldview, at times we say things and we're like, we have, there's no malice intended, but it still is harmful to say it. Yeah. Um, and so, like, for Dana, who's getting beaten and nearly raped, nearly shot and forced to work in the field and whipped and all these things, for her own husband to say, oh, what a fascinating trip into history. We can go see right. cowboys. And I love the point she makes of, like, that's what they're doing to the Indians. I mean, right. the fact that Octavia Butler recognized that in the 70s or even the 60s um, is quite amazing. And I think we saw some of that in even Tanana Reeve Dew's short story um, about, like, Indians reclaiming their, their land in the future. You know, like, she recognized that even having written that short story quite a while ago. So yeah. I'm forever impressed by Octavia Butler's ability to understand issues that maybe aren't fully unraveled by like popular culture of like understanding, okay, we performed <clears throat> genocide against the Native Americans, you know? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that and not to like segue away from what we're talking about, but I wonder how much other ethnicities and minorities that were being suppressed in the 60s and 70s were kind of aware of each other mm -hmm. and some of the things going on. Because 
there were a lot of things happening in the 60s and 70s against Native Americans. There was a lot of um, child removal mm-hmm. um, happening um, where children were literally taken away from their parents yeah. and sent to schools. Um, and there was no choice in the matter. And Even... and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about how aware... Um, you know, Octavia Butler was of things like that happening to, you know, other minorities. In I'm the sure 60s she and ex- 70s. experienced it with Asians as well, especially in California, um, because you know during World War Two there were the reinternment camps, right, with um, Japanese population. Um, so I-, I think she was very cognizant of all of that, whereas. You know, if you're brought up in typical white bread America, everything's daisies and sunshine and roses. You know, largely. Well, at least when I was in high school, we were largely taught like, yes, slavery happened, but we changed that and we fixed our mistake, and we are the greatest America on uh, the greatest country on earth. Right? Yeah, it was so Um, amazing, and it's very much like papered over the Trail of Tears and well beyond that. Um, and like, it oh, yeah, these are like one-off things that happen that were bad, but like and it doesn't really explore like the repercussions that are still echoing through mm-hmm. the decades afterwards. Like what what events and did that horrible thing set in motion that are still affecting people yeah, today? I, mean, I was you know, reading something about over that. I was reading something about how when they when they basically said slavery was illegal in England, they um, reimbursed slave owners for the slaves. And that, in turn, you know, created that generational wealth that people always talk about, where, you know, it changes your whole family's future trajectory in terms of education and opportunity and awareness and um, health and put you know those families on a path to affluence even in spite of having to give up quote unquote their greatest like source of money yeah they were reimbursed for it whereas the slaves themselves were given their freedom but they you know were given given nothing nothing else Ugh, that's disgusting to even think. It's like, it, hey, there's a reward for owning people. You it, know. Yeah. It's it's Ugh. quite depressing. And on that depressing note, should we pause? Here? Yeah, maybe. This might be a good place to, to end our, our part one discussion. We've still got a, quite a lot of the book to dis- what so discuss. So much, yeah. I think we've got Dana. We want to dive into her even more. Probably Rufus. What else do you see us covering in the second half? Yeah, that and just uh, sort of some of the the challenging themes throughout the book and how I feel like that was handled in this book. Yeah. And, um, of course, our, our core ratings for the wine and yeah, for the book. So yeah. we'll, we'll be dropping that content next week. So don't you won't want to miss it um, because there's still a lot of the book there's to cover. There's so much of this book to cover. And if you haven't listened to it, on audible or if you haven't read it yourself um definitely... it's a relatively quick read i mean it's, it's only yeah. 260 something pages so i listened to it on on 
1.25 speed. I don't know what you listen to it One, on. One, because <laughs> I'm dumb and can't process things that quickly. <laughs> 1.25 worked well for me. Um, so I listened to it, I think it was like 8 hours and 17 minutes or that something right. like that. It's 10 hours for me at yeah. regular speed. Yeah, so I mean it didn't shave that much off, but... Um, yeah, it was it was quite enjoyable to listen to the audio narrator was, was really well. Kim Staunton, do you remember? Uh, I can look it up real quick because I looked her up because I was interested, and she's actually an actress, and she was in really the, that doesn't surprise me. She was in the play Fences, which eventually was turned into a movie with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe they were both nominated for Oscars if they didn't win. They should have done because Viola Davis and Denzel Washington are amazing, iconic actors. Um, so anyway, um, Kim Staunton, fairly well known. Yeah, Kim Staunton, you're right. And she does very subtle shifts in her voices to illustrate the different characters, but it's very effective. It's so good. Um, and she infuses that southern timber to Rufus, to oh. Tom, to Margaret, even at some point to um, Kevin, who sort of adopts an accent after having Yeah, because he's been there for six years. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, highly recommend the audiobook. Yeah. Um, but also love the read as well. Yeah. So however you choose to... Um, absorb it please do and tune in next week for the second half definitely buzz off mates follow us on twitter at buzzedbritcast and you can follow us on instagram at buzzedbritbookclub and email at buzzedbritbookclub at gmail.com